Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fiboli, Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. The CIA has released a policy statement entitled Big Data and Risk Classification, Understanding the Actuarial and Social Issues. We encourage everyone to read this document, which is on the CIA website, and to provide some background on the discussions that led to the statement, we are joined by two members of the task force responsible for its creation, CIA members Matt Bookalter and Chris Cooney. Thanks very much to both of you for joining us today. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Likewise, thanks uh, for having me. Well, let's start off by maybe just recap for us. What's the state of big data, particularly in the PNC world where you both practice? Uh, what are some examples of data that are being collected now that we just weren't getting, say, 15 to 20 years ago? I think the quintessential example of big data in the PNC world would be vehicle telematics devices. And that's something that's just started to come to prominence in Canada about 10 years ago. And the way it works is it's either a phone app or a piece of hardware that's connected directly to the vehicle, and it can measure all kinds of things. And uh, the benefits of a vehicle telematics device really come into two categories. First of all, it gets you a better measure of exposure. So obviously, the more driving a given vehicle does in a given year, the more opportunities it would have to have a claim. And prior to telematics devices, the total mileage per year was something that had to be estimated by the customer. And a couple of problems with that. Number one, no one really keeps track of how many kilometers they drive in a year. And even if they did, there's not really a lot of ways to verify that information from the insurer's point of view. So you have the device built directly into the vehicle or through a phone app that can measure very accurately accurately how many kilometers a year this vehicle is being driven. In addition to that, the vehicle telematics devices provide a measure of risk. Uh, and by risk in this case, I mean driving behaviors, whether it's hard acceleration, hard braking, hard cornering. Some of the devices have different ways that they can measure driver fatigue. All of these things allow the insurance company to have a much better, uh, a much more detailed assessment of the risk of any given driver driving any given vehicle than what would have been possible prior to the advent of telematics devices. And uh, although I'm a property and casualty actuary, I'm also familiar with the fact that there are some Fitbit type health information applications. For example, I know that Manulife has a vitality program where they offer certain incentives and rewards for their customers who really to encourage uh, healthy lifestyles. The one other thing I would know just in the realm of big data is that historically when, and I've been around the industry a long time, uh, we would have conducted a statistical analysis. We would generally have used aggregated statistics, and, and you can look at, say, some of our industry data sources where they didn't really have all the granularity and they didn't have some of the intersections between, let's say, driving age and the number of years license. You would get them sort of aggregated independently. But today we, we tend to use much wider data sets uh, with a lot more supplemental information. It's more granular. It's at a risk level. Uh, and that's another change that I think is uh, really transforming the way analytics is performed in our industry. So I guess one question is, why do we need more data? I mean, why could insurers not just keep using the data they've traditionally collected? Why do we have this need for, for more information? I think in essence, there's a lot of 
you know, innovation and search for competitive advantage is a, a natural factor that takes us there. We also see that society is evolving around us. So, and, and I think the emergence of the smartphone and even the ability to capture telematics information is new. And uh, of course, we're going to see how we can use these new technologies to, to give us advantage. You know, again, in the life space, I think DNA testing is widespread and many of us will have obtained information that connects us to an assessment of future health risks in addition to, you know, just the typical origins type uh, analysis. And, and I think for, again, uh, from a data asymmetry perspective, where a potential applicant knows more about their specific risks than an insurer, that's always been a risk that's been evaluated at the underwriting stage. And, and today, I think this risk is even more elevated given the preponderance of some of these new insights. Yeah, I think big data is a fairly new concept, but it's just a natural evolution of predictive analytics in risk classification that's been going on, at least in the PNC industry, for at least 30 plus years. And I, I agree with Chris that we operate in a highly competitive market. And this is a good thing for consumers because they can search for a carrier whose coverage and pricing is best for them. But it also leads to a bit of a data and analytics arms race because uh, anti-selection is a problem that, that is real and that is prominent. And whoever in the industry has the most accurate, most sophisticated risk classification and pricing will be, I guess you could say, on the on the winning end of that adverse selection game. And nobody wants to be on the losing end because that is a that's just a, a big problem for any company financially. So every insurance company is on a constant search for new data, new analytical techniques in order to predict any individual's risk as, as accurately as possible. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that because I think that's a great point, Matt. And, and also, you know, the cost of data storage and, you know, the speed of computing power and so on, it's all been on an upward trajectory, of course, and uh, with new methodologies, open source, you know, you can go and get the latest and greatest statistical methodologies for free effectively. So I think all of that is is really kind of playing into, you know, as Matthew called it, the, the arms race is accelerating the arms race. Great. Yeah, I want to talk a bit more about the pricing in a couple of minutes, but first I want to do a little detour and and talk a bit about data privacy because that's obviously an issue that comes up when we talk about big data. So so how is the industry managing policyholder expectations in this particular area? As someone who works in a large Canadian organization, I can reflect that our internal policies and practices focus a great deal on customer privacy protection. So for example, we have internal guidelines that require submission of privacy assessments before we conduct research into a particular uh, data and outcome relationship. Uh, all of our staff goes through training on a regular basis that talks about the importance of privacy and you know, maintaining trust with consumers. Uh, we take particular care with what we define as you know PII in the industry or personally identifiable information because we understand that the risk that this poses to our customers is is the greatest in, in that case. Uh, and of course, uh, information security is another critical element because we can only protect the customer's privately shared information when it's within our ecosystem. Of course, if there's a breach to the external world, there's a great deal of risk for our customers when their data is exposed. I would just add that privacy and ethical data collection practices are by no means issues that are unique to the insurance industry. Um, there are all kinds of strict laws and regulations about collection and use of personal information. There's actually something that just came out recently called the Digital Charter Implementation Act, which even further outlines uh, responsibilities with regard to collection and use of, of personal information. And these things apply to all industries, including insurance. And one of the basic 
legal principles of insurance is that it's a transaction requiring the utmost good faith between the policyholder and the insurer. And in, in my mind, that principle of utmost good faith extends to responsible data collection and, and usage. So I believe the insurance industry holds itself to the highest possible standards with regards to ethical data collection, ethical data use, proper data storage, and disposal of personal information. And I'll just connect a little bit more to that term usage that you used, Matthew, just in the sense that we very often look very closely at what the consent statement says we will use the information for. And, and again, consent is a, a critical part of the privacy discussion, because if you consented for use for a particular purpose, and then the insurance company goes and turns around and does that in, in a different kind of use exercise, you know, that's a breach of trust. And, and so as part of these privacy assessments that I was mentioning, that's a critical element of the review that takes place before we go and, and use it. So for example, UBI or usage-based insurance information gets shared. We need to make sure that when our analysis is conducted, it's purely in the role of loss cost analysis and, and isn't going into other domains that weren't disclosed when the customer signed up for that particular program. So let's get back to the pricing issues. Um, in particular, I'm curious how you know, pricing and rate making models have had to adapt themselves in order to accommodate this new level of data collection. So I was hoping you could share some of the new techniques that you've uh, seen being used in this space. I think that the, the first big change is just the sheer volume of data. So if you're analyzing a book with, let's say, 100,000 uh, policies in it, prior to this big data age, there would have been 100,000 records, 100,000 sets of risk characteristics, each of them attached to claims experience on that policy in that, in that given period of time. But now, if I go back to the example of vehicle telematics, your device might be taking a snapshot every 10 minutes, every five minutes, every minute, every 30 seconds, so that the number of of records per policy per term and the number of fields per record are both growing exponentially. So that brings into play all kinds of issues around data storage, around big data analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of these things that, that weren't really needed before we started entering this world of big data. I mean, we've always had big data in insurance, but I think it's when you're dealing with 100,000 records versus 100 million records, some of, of the, the ways of processing that data become, become quite different. So I think we've had to adapt to that in our rate making. And, and I had alluded earlier to the evolution of modeling methodologies, and, and I think that's also a, a key area of focus. So for example, XGBoost is a model that is well known in the statistical community for having great predictive power. Uh, and I note that there, there's new methodologies and deep learning techniques that enable even more access to new types of information sources. So for example, uh, image data such as satellite imagery. So we might want to, for example, evaluate the roof size by looking at um, uh, satellite imagery data. And, and that's one less question that we can actually ask for the consumer when they call us to insure their policy. So it, it has a consumer benefit as much as it has an insurance benefit. Uh, and so we're able to reach into new information sources to help us you know, create a better customer experience. Uh, the other thing I'll just kind of allude to from a future-based perspective is, you know, we're obviously all concerned around, you know, increasing storm frequencies and, and climate risk. And, and, and similarly, I think that's probably an area for revolution in the future is how climate risk and, and some of those uh, longer-term trends might intersect with, you know, the viability of, uh, of our insurance markets from a, a catastrophic risk potential. 
Now, I understand that the more that we add uh, data for risk classification purposes, that can create some, shall we say, unexpected consequences. I was hoping you could share a couple of examples, either real or hypothetical, that you may have to deal with as uh, someone who's trying to determine a, a rate structure for insurance. I think when you look at unexpected consequences, that often comes from prevention of using certain risk classification variables where you get a a law or a regulation that is usually well-intentioned but can have some some adverse unintended consequences. And there's an example from, from much earlier in my career when I was working in auto insurance pricing and one of the provinces decided that driver age was no longer an acceptable rating uh, factor for auto insurance. So what companies started doing is switching their rating models from one based on driver age to one based on driver number of years license, which is obviously closely related to age in that the majority of drivers would initially become licensed around age 16, 17, 18. But that's not true for every driver. You, you might get some drivers that first got their driver's license much later in life, maybe due to a change in their family status, or maybe because they moved from the city out to the suburbs where they needed to drive, or, or maybe even they were a newcomer to Canada and first got a Canadian driver's license later in life. So the unintended consequence of this regulation was that you would now have, let's say, a 50-year-old driver with two years license because they got their license later in life. And because the rating system had shifted from one uh, based on age to one based on years licensed, you had this 50-year-old with two years licensed paying premiums for auto insurance that were in line with what an 18-year-old with two years license uh, would pay. And, and I would argue that there are some serious differences in terms of driving behaviors between an 18-year-old with two years license and a 50-year-old with two years license. And I, I'm sure that this was not the intent of the regulation, but you know, just like water will always flow to, to the lowest point, when, whenever there are regulatory constraints, Insurance companies and pricing actuaries are always going to get creative to see how they can innovate different ways of rating while staying within the the regulatory guidelines. And I think that's an example of, of what happened in, in this case. So I think the lesson from that is when you get uh, overly prescriptive regulation around what data elements can and cannot be used, there is a high risk of unintended consequences where you, know, you, you, you as the regulator or as the, the lawmaker might expect one set of outcomes and get something that is quite a bit different. And I recall that uh, our committee discussed the intersection between what I'll call market economics and social fairness a great deal. Um, And we noted that it requires a balancing act. Some of the commentary reflected that actuaries cannot ignore the potential social issues. We we heard that in uh, many of the review comments on our paper, and, and we fulsomely agree we have a responsibility to the public good. We note as well that there is an equally important challenge that exists on the economic side as as actuaries were defenders of the resilience of the system of risk transfer. I don't know that that's really a well-known responsibility that actuaries possess, but but that's something that came back to us is that, you know, as Matthew alluded to, when you create this discontinuity in, in the marketplace, the forces of economic forces, and I recall that Facility Association did not introduce either year's license uh, when they eliminated age, and they ended up having all the young drivers in the market. So they're, they're very real forces that come to bear. Another example that I, I would highlight is that you know much has been made of the higher cost of rates in Brampton for auto insurance, but there hasn't actually been a lot of study as to the underlying factors. So for example, Brampton has a lot of six-lane roads capable of high vehicle speeds. 
uh, it's a community that's built for for commuting. And I would note, because I've lived uh, in close proximity to Brampton, that, that making a left turn across three lanes of oncoming traffic is much more difficult than it is when you're you're making a left turn across one lane of traffic. But, you know, these are the types of facts that rarely enter the conversation. And I think the use of more granular analytics, for example, where are the collisions occurring? What is the nature of the severity of, a, of an accident? So, for example, do these six-lane roads have more severe collisions where there's higher speeds? I think that's one way to bring a greater focus to the problem and, and actually to help address some of the underlying issues that are responsible for the higher costs. I like to say that our models point to the issues. What we do with them is, is a critical step that involves a lot of parties to, to help constructively address them. Let's wrap up by maybe taking a look forward. I'd like to ask you, how do you see data collection evolving over the next few years? Do you think we'll start to collect more data, different types of data, or do we eventually reach a natural limit whereby, you know, we've done all that we can within our current pricing models? So there's nothing static about big data and predictive analytics. It's constantly evolving and improving, uh, not only in insurance, but everything from sports to movie recommendations to, to shopping. And I, I would say we are no exception to that. Who knows what the future will hold? But I, I would find it hard to believe that there will not continue to be improvements in data collection and analytics technology. I think the only natural limit would be some imaginary future where, where everything is deterministic and predictable and there's no randomness left in, in the world. I mean, that's an interesting philosophical discussion to be had about whether such a world is physically possible. But I think for the near future, at least, it's firmly in the, the domain of science fiction. So I, I don't see us running up against any natural limits anytime soon in terms of predictive analytics, either in insurance risk classification or really in any other domain. The one thing I would, would call out, and, and I was on the actuarial uh, conference uh, presenting a, a segment around ESG and, and focused really on the intersection of the social good and um, you know some of these issues. And, and I think the one thing I would note is that, again, our market and, and social issues are, are bound to collide. And, and I think as we get to more granular um, levels of detail, I, I think the potential for that is going to continue to increase. And one example I would, would raise again is territorial rating in auto and, and should, for example, the auto industry move to uh, postal code level rating. And I think that's a place where, uh, again, market forces will, will drive there, but there are also social issues that I think we need to come to terms with uh, in response to that. And, and what I noted in my talk is that, again, we need to focus on this collaboratively. Um, the regulator has to play a role. There, there's also you know, some of the bias and fairness protocols that occur within organizations that are also forcing us to confront this and to address it. So the one thing we can't do is, is ignore it. And, and, you know, as I noted in my talk, I think the actuarial community is a key player in, in helping to both understand where these issues are going to collide, but also helping raise awareness around how we can constructively address it. We can't always produce the solutions on our own, because as I mentioned, sometimes you need a regulator to help bridge a solution. Maybe you need uh, something like a pooling or sharing mechanism that can help to address some of the issues that are, are going to emerge. But yeah, the one thing we certainly can't do is ignore it. So lots of interesting issues. Uh, I'd like to thank both of you for coming on the podcast today to discuss them with us. Yeah, thanks. Chris. Thanks a lot, Chris. So once again, the statement on big data and risk classification can be found on the CIA website.
And we now have over 100 episodes in our podcast series going back over the past three years. So we encourage everybody to subscribe and you can do so through whatever platform you use to get your podcast content. We'd like to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions or ideas for episodes, you can send it to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. And we're always looking for content to put on our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have some ideas that you would like to share with us, you can reach us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Fivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.